You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 24th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View with Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, my guests Steve Crawshaw and Quentin Peel will examine the changing shape of German politics following regional elections in Hamburg. Plus we'll assess the latest Democratic campaign victory for Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and the World Photography Awards removes Hong Kong protest shots for being too politically sensitive. Also ahead... The hope is to finally break the political deadlock that has evolved between incumbent Likud Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his rival, Blue and White Party leader Benny Gantz. Israel enters the final week of campaigning, ahead of a third general election in a year. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. I'm joined in the studio by Steve Crawshaw, political director at Freedom From Torture and the author of several books on political protest, and by Quentin Peel, who's a former Berlin correspondent for the Financial Times. Welcome both gentlemen to the studio. Good to see you. Let's begin in the United States, where Bernie Sanders has firmly cemented his position as frontrunner in the race to be the Democratic presidential nominee. He comfortably won the Nevada caucus, claiming only he alone had what it takes to bring all walks of American life together to fight Donald Trump. Now, Trump and his friends think they are going to win this election. They think they're going to win this election by dividing our people up based on the color of their skin or where they were born or their religion or their sexual orientation. We are going to win because we are doing exactly the opposite. We're bringing our people together. Bernie Sanders there in triumphant mode following the Nevada caucus. Steve, let's begin with you. What do we make of Sanders' astonishing performance? Yes, it's extraordinary. I mean, with politics more generally, what we've had in the past couple of years, both in the UK and in the US repeatedly, is things that seem completely impossible then happen. And that happens consistently. Um, Commentators, including like us, are so often ending up with egg on their faces. And there are small parallels to what we saw in in the UK, where you had Jeremy Corbyn, who was repeatedly, couldn't possibly win um, a leadership and then became the leader of the Labour Party with lots of enthusiasm. And what's, I think, going to be very interesting, the same process that we saw with the uh, here in the UK is when the establishment, if or when the establishment of his own party will accept what's happening. The second big question, of course, is can he actually face off and can he get beyond that bubble, beyond that enthusiastic bubble, can he actually win the big election as opposed to the, the nomination? That enthusiastic bubble, though, is growing bigger by the day. I mean, if you look at Nevada, it has a sort of pretty... Um, accurate reflection of the diversity of the US public and just listening to what Sanders was saying he's he's determined to bring people together regardless of who you are or, or what you do it's a very powerful idea isn't it yeah I think he's done what Nevada has shown is that he's actually very clearly picked up the biggest share of the Hispanic vote for example which is going to be critical to anybody to win the big election and so when Super Tuesday comes in 10 days time or 7 days eight days time, um, 
California is there with a very big Hispanic vote. Now, if he can get Texas and California, I think he becomes unstoppable. So it may sign that, you know, Mike Bloomberg's left it too late. It was a, the suggestion, actually, that it was this time four years ago in Nevada that Hillary Clinton, who she, uh, started to sort of eclipse Bernie Sanders. But we're in a very different uh, place now, aren't we? Because we don't just have two candidates. We've got a, we've got everybody at each other's throats within the Democrats. Yeah. There's that also, but also is the kind of unthinkable. So I was living in the States in 2009 when the um, uh, when Obama and Hillary Clinton were facing up against each other, and Hillary absolutely seemed to be the front runner to be the nominee at that on that occasion, and the. The kind of subtext narrative, sometimes not even subtext, was, oh, come on, you can't have a black candidate be president. Go for the real one, which is Hillary Clinton, you know, brings all this and it belongs to me. That was really, she, both she and her husband, both she and Bill Clinton were kind of pretty much making it explicit, it belongs to me. And gradually... It was like, actually, no, this is doable. But she hung on for dear life long after it was clear to the country as a whole that Obama was going to get the nomination. And what was also vivid then, who knows where this one will go, but it was striking that up until election day, there was huge, like, can America really do this? Really? A black president? And then, of course, it did happen. It happened not once but twice. Whether we get the same thing here, that, again, the the, the impossibility is happening in terms of a quote-unquote self-declared socialist. That'll be so, that so interesting. More, which is the more shocking, <laughs> That's really, right. For to a, have American a black history. president or a man who calls yeah. himself a yeah. socialist president. Yeah. I think a man who calls himself socialist president <laughs> would be even more amazing in yeah. this day and age. But the zigzag and the boomerang is also very interesting because kind of, we had this powerful Obama presidency and then that happened twice. And you can certainly see in some elements of... Um, Trump's victory, a kind of like, whoa, where did that come from? And you go right to the other end of the spectrum in terms of sanity and, and many other things, to be honest. And it would be very interesting if the unpopularity that Trump has caused them and things gives an energy which sends it spinning back in the other way. It's going to be an interesting few months. It, it really does is. make for a very nasty battle, doesn't it? I mean, we, I mean, Trump will have some pretty easy targets if he gets Sanders up against him. The socialist the old man, the man with the heart condition, the angry man, not to le- not least. I mean, it, well, it's Trump, describing Trump, himself, isn't it? Trump doesn't have that hard a time picking big holes in Sanders, does he? Well, certainly all those familiar things, you know, but above all, the man is so left wing, you know, is, and he's from this tiny little corner of America, Vermont, you know, representing a bunch of hippies and old white men. And one huge advantage that he has, which Hillary absolutely did not have, so she could be portrayed as somehow the establishment. Of course, Trump was also establishment, but he loved to be the outsider and she was, quote unquote, the establishment. That card is way more difficult to play with. With Sanders, you know, look if you're looking at the left behind voters, if you like, he can speak more easily than she perhaps could in that sense. I find it that quite astonishing that yes, you have the left behind voters, but um, I've been lucky enough to to go to a, a small talk held by Bernie Sanders, and I was sitting about twenty feet from him, and it was at a, a, a literary festival where every other event was, dare I say it, populated by white couples from North London over 60 all wearing uh, blue plastic rain coverings and yet Sanders comes in and I don't know where they bust these kids in from but they were teenagers and they were whooping and hollering as if this guy were well didn't look or sound like he did. I still struggle to find out what it is about Sanders that's so magical I think it's different it's new it's not establishment it's it's uh, against the elite it's all of those things and it, it's it's funny uh, 
it's, it is also, as one would say in Britain, the Jeremy Corbyn effect. Yeah. Where did all those young people come who were backing Jeremy Corbyn? And look where it got the Labour Party. Fundamentally nowhere. It's worst of eaten in many years. So that's the danger. But isn't it quite extraordinary that these old men, because after all, Trump's an old man, Sanders is an old man, and Mike Bloomberg is an old man. They're all in their late 70s. I mean, they make me feel young, for goodness sake. <laughs> before, before moving on to our next subject, Steve, let's just bring in that idea of Bloomberg, who Quentin has just mentioned. You have Sanders' incredible popularity. However, you have a splintered midfield when it comes to, middle ground when it comes to uh, the other candidates, Buttigieg, Biden and Bloomberg. Surely, if you brought them together... How would that change things? I mean, I just wonder whether it's time for a couple to drop out and and for the democratic middle ground to really work out who they want to take. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that is quite a big if because there's so much fighting between them. And then it reminds me of everything that Quentin just said about the parallels with Jeremy Corbyn are are definitely there. You know, Jeremy Corbyn, who could hold the Glastonbury Festival. You can imagine Bernie Sanders doing the equivalent in the States. But another equivalent in in the UK is, in a sense, the Boris Johnson leadership, where the entire conservative establishment didn't want him. And they were desperate to become united against and fundamentally failed because they were pulling in different directions. And it feels to me that the Democrats are now in the same place. And also it is the cliche, but it is true, the nature of these successive rounds in the US system mean to a certain point it just becomes clear that you are the front runner and it's really hard to coalesce at that point. So do you think Mike Bloomberg's left it too late? Because he could end up, if he didn't get the Democratic nomination, of course Bloomberg could run as an independent. He's got the money to. Quentin Peel and Steve Crawshaw, thank you for the moment. We'll be back in just a second. But first, here's Monocle's Carlotta Rabello with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Emma. North Korea has put hundreds of foreign nationals in quarantine in a bid to stop the coronavirus from breaking out. State media reports that most of the foreigners are diplomats stationed in the capital Pyongyang. About 200 foreigners had already been confined to their compounds over the past 30 days. Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad has submitted his resignation to the king. The 94-year-old's decision comes amid reports that he may form a new coalition without his designated successor Anwar Ibrahim. Mohamed made headlines in 2018 when he became the world's oldest prime minister. Members of the UK's Labour Party are starting to vote for Jeremy Corbyn's successor. Three candidates are in the running for leader, Sir Keir Starmer, Rebecca Long-Bailey and Liz Andy. The results of the leadership election will be announced at the beginning of April. And the Monocle Minute reports that Adelaide has more cheap street parking than any metropolis in Australia. This abundance eats into the space available for bike lanes and footpaths and leaves residents more inclined to shirk public transport for their own car. For more on the story, head over to monocle.com forward slash minute. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson, here with Quentin Peel and Steve Crawshaw. In Germany this weekend, there were more destabilising developments for the party of the Chancellor Angela Merkel. The CDU suffered a big defeat in the regional elections in Hamburg, pushed to third place behind the centre-left SPD and the Greens. Quentin, we'll begin with you. Can you explain to us what happened that caused such trouble? 
well, it's two different worlds. I'm not sure we should be worried about Hamburg. I think we should, in a way, be rather reassured by Hamburg that sort of a degree of old-fashioned sanity has prevailed. I think both Steve and I can remember 20, 30 years ago even, we were talking about red-green coalitions in Hamburg. The Social Democrats have suddenly, you know, have, have got a jolly decent vote, 39%. The Greens have doubled their vote from 12 to 24%. But the Christian Democrats have suffered their second worst result ever in a Lunt election with only 11%. Uh, and it shows that they are now really finding this business of um, a party that doesn't know how to replace Angela Merkel. They're blown wide open by that. It, it is that issue, isn't it? I mean, up until now, Steve, every time you say the CDU, I've just done it, the CDU, Angela Merkel's party, and it seems impossible to separate the two. This is clearly something that the CDU are having to do. Mm. They've failed with AKK. Um, there are all manner of uh, accusations that they left the Alternative für Deutschland get a little bit too close and, and give them great threats. Is this a moment for the CDU where they're realising that they can no longer survive or they can, they're going to have to survive without Mutti? Yeah. I mean, bear in mind, as, as Quentin says, we were journalists together in, you know, sometime deep in the last century, basically. And even then, um, there was constant stories about the instability of Germany. I, I, I lost count of the number of stories that my editors wanted about, oh, this shows, the, this, show, this new vote shows, this shows, this shows. And I remember on one occasion writing a New Year piece commissioned, like, oh, how dangerous would it be? And I said, look at all the headlines and then ignore them. Because actually, the not, not despite, but because of Germany's history, it has built in so many things. Merkel herself, as you say, is now seen as absolutely the core of stability. Remember that she, with her predecessor, Helmut Kohl, he described her as Das Mädchen, the little girl. And she has actually shown herself to have an incredible strength. Who knows who will come through on the CDU now? But I agree with Quentin. I think it's super interesting to have 20-something percent from the Greens playing a role. It's an environmental party, but actually, as everyone knows Germany well, it's much more than environmental. It's kind of about a whole set of values. And I think that's super interesting as the pushback on the far-right AFD. It reminds us that there are two souls of Germany, which is partly West-East, but not only. You have this issue with the Greens, don't you? That you, you? You almost have the values that have, as you say, been bubbling along inside Germany for as long as I can remember, at least. But suddenly the news and the planet and time has, has forced the Greens actually to, to blossom. Absolutely. Their time has come, I think, and it's very possible that the next German Chancellor could actually be a Green. We could have a, a Green-Black coalition. But this is the problem for the Christian Democrat Party, that there they are trying to find a successor for Merkel because, as you say, Annika Kahnbauer has thrown in the towel and given up. She was the chosen successor. Now we have four men, all from the same land in Germany, all from North Rhine-Westphalia, competing. And in a many ways they represent a pretty traditional view but they have a party that is squeezed from one side by the greens and you know probably more dangerously from them even squeezed from the other side by the alternative für deutschland the alternative the do we call it far right anyway super nationalist party anti-immigrant party which is picking up lots of support in east germany i wonder how you actually do 
get this, you know, this instability that everybody always talks mm. about. I wonder whether the real moment has come, though, because if you have four men who come from North Rhine-Westphalia, there's a tradition there, and then you have the Greens, and you have a country which absolutely loves its cars. It, you know, its industry is highly dependent on that kind of stuff. They still have coal. Where are we going with this, Steve? Well, yes. I mean, every party has its own small little um, double standards, whatever you, you like to call it. You're quite right. There'll be many green voters who also have a very nice car that goes very fast indeed on the autobahn. Uh, that, that's undoubtedly true. I mean, I do think we all know that with Greta Thunberg and many other things, clearly environmental things are there. I think that... It's interesting in terms of the more general stability. One thing is that if you look at the voting pattern, the East and West is so divided, which I would never have guessed 30 years after the war would be down that it would be so divided. Um, but also, it's so interesting that a conservative leader, that Kam Karamawa, was forced to resign because her party had slightly got into bed with that far right. So, frankly, it's the kind of thing which parties across Europe are doing the whole time in a really worrying way. But Germany still does have those protections like no. No, thus far, but no further. I hope that will stay. It's not a given, but I hope it will stay. We're going to have an extraordinary moment, though, now, when Germany is about to, in the middle of the year, will become the president of the European Union. And uh, everybody's saying, oh, well, maybe they can solve the budget problem. They can solve the Brexit problem. You know, this will all be Merkel's swan song. And actually, they're going to be looking inwards at their navels, wondering, oh, my God, how are we going to run the country and hold it together politically? I suspect they will somehow. I don't know about you. <laughs> Finally, the purpose of reportage is, you could safely argue, to offer an image of the world as it is and to shed light on issues that would otherwise go unseen. But several entrants to the 2020 Sony World Photography Awards have found themselves either removed from the shortlist or their entries significantly edited. All the candidates had one thing in common. The pictures that had been removed were of the Hong Kong riots. Uh, Steve, tell us more about your reaction to this story. I mean, you're expert in protest and it's, freedom of speech. Yeah, it's so dismaying. As one of the photographers themselves said, it's kind of, I can't remember what the quote was, but amazing but not surprising. And I think that's exactly right, really. So we're seeing governments constantly giving way, being frightened. We know that China will put pressure. So everything from when Liu Xiaobo got the Nobel Peace Prize, the pressures they put on the Norwegian government not to do this, that and the other... I was on a human rights defenders jury one time where the Chinese government put massive pressure on the UN official who was due to present, saying if this happens, then various things. They're always threatening, and sometimes governments stand up and often they don't. But now you have this commercial sense that come out, oh, if we show that photograph, then maybe that'll have implications. I think it's absolutely craven. I think it's deeply shocking. Photographs are so important. Both Quentin and I are, are, are writers by trade originally, but I, everybody who is a writer knows that when you're writing, the images, all of those cliches, a picture being worth a thousand words, is is entirely true. It gives the power of like, wow, that's what's happening. It tells you. And the idea that those things should actually not be shown, I find so troubling. Arguably, though, the 2020 Sony World Photography Awards haven't done haven't really covered themselves in glory and perhaps one would argue it's directed us all a little bit more quickly to the work of uh, the likes of da David Butov and, and uh, the Hong Kong based photographer Ko Chung Ming whose, whose images of the Hong Kong riots are breathtakingly powerful. I don't know how much attention I'd have paid to them had I not been told that I shouldn't be looking at them. <laughs> well, that's very true. I think they may blow up in their face, you know. I mean, it really is shocking that they could uh, the, the, this, the 
absolute vital importance of images in bringing things and was remain, remaining with us for so long. But those photographs will remain with us regardless of whether they've won a prize or not. They'll be right out there. So I think that actually is the reassuring thing. And there were accusations as well of double standards, Steve. I mean, we have the, the Hong Kong protests, those images either being severely reduced in number or removed full stop until obviously you go and Google them. Uh, but then uh, one of the photographers had said, look, well, look we, can show prote- we can't show protests of Hong- pictures of Hong Kong protests, but it's fine to show pictures of violent protests by Palestinian activists and other places. Yeah. So where in your world of protest and freedom of speech, where do people start drawing lines? Is it purely commercial or are there other aspects too? I think it's commercial above all. I mean, on something like a picture, there the really shouldn't be lines. And if it's already f- a finalist, and they have, as you say, they're looking stupid because they've actually retreated on some, they put things back online, which were previously offline. So, so they are definitely on the retreat. I, I think that the the danger is. It's certainly you mentioned Palestinian. I mean, clearly there have been many occasions where the pressure from the Israeli authorities have been huge to try and stop certain things happening, although not as I'm aware of in, in the cases of images. But these kind of different pressures, they do pop up everywhere. There was one a couple of days ago of this um, new film, The Dissident, about the uh, um, the Saudi journalist Khashoggi, who was who was tortured to death in the the um, the um, Saudi consulate, notoriously. And Apparently, I haven't seen it yet, but a very powerful film made by an Oscar-winning director. That has not managed to get rave reviews from those who've seen it, but has not yet found distributors in key countries. And again, you go like, really? You're that frightened of a country which is torturing the whole time that you don't even let a film be shown? That, for me, that's the kind of thing that really should not be crossed. And both of you gentlemen, I would rather pay compliments to your experience in terms of, I won't sort of explain the fact that you have both worked behind the Iron Curtain. You've both worked in the likes of, of the of the then Soviet Union. I mean, if you were thinking back to those times and someone said in 2020, we won't be able to see a picture of protest because of commercial reasons. What would you what would you think at that time, Quentin? I think I've been utterly horrified because the whole point of the time that we were in the Soviet Union in its dying days, but was glasnost. Everything was being opened up by the media and by the insistence on bringing out the unsayable or unthinkable in print too, but also in every way. And that was so reassuring. But now in Russia today, the media is hugely controlled now by uh, by Putin and all his acolytes. Um, so you have a much more worrying situation. So on the one hand, you have the wonders of the internet, which allow us to find these things regardless. But at the same time, the desire to control has grown. I hope that Quentin and I, didn't, neither of us, when we were in Moscow together, I hope that neither of us self-censored. But I mean, there is a significant history of this happening. One of the most notorious ones is from Moscow, when in the 1930s, during the worst crimes of Stalin, including appalling killing of millions in Ukraine, the New York Times correspondent then, who won a Pulitzer Prize of his glorious writing, which they've now tried to take away but have not quite succeeded, he was so eager to stay in Moscow and be able to have access and this, that and the other, that he fundamentally tried to kill that story. And I think that is there's a, a rather brilliant new Polish film called Citizen Jones, which is on those themes. And this is something which is about a Welsh guy who kind of exposed things against that. And that, I think, is a lesson for any journalist or anyone who has power of what can be said or not said. The idea that you shut something down because you want the access, that is not a good place to go. 
Quentin Peel and Steve Croshaw, thank you very much indeed for joining me in the studio. In a moment on Monocle 24, Israel braces for a third general election in a year. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. And if you've just joined us, you've tuned in to Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to the programme. Today, Israel enters its final week of campaigning ahead of a general election. So what can we expect when the country heads to the polls once again? Here's Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey. Could this finally be the one? Israel is set to hold its third election in a year, a week from now. The hope is to finally break the political deadlock that has evolved between incumbent Likud Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his rival, Blue and White Party leader Benny Gantz. Yet recent polling suggests that neither has managed to swing enough voters their way to radically change the result of previous elections. The country is now entering uncharted territory. Having yet another election six months after the last is unheard of, But even more unusual are the circumstances surrounding the man at the center of the storm. Netanyahu is facing three separate corruption charges and will have to appear in court in mid-March, right in the middle of the expected coalition negotiations. He is the first sitting prime minister in Israel's history to be indicted, but it has done little to dent his popularity. He's dismissed the whole affair as an attempted coup and in December won a party leadership poll by a landslide. As part of his bid to clinch a fourth term, he is desperately hunting for allies. Most of the usual smaller parties have refused to go into government with a prime minister in the middle of criminal proceedings, so he's had to look further right than even he might normally. Last week he announced over 6,000 new homes in contested East Jerusalem in a bid to garner support. That's territory that's considered occupied under international law. He has been in power for over a decade and is clearly bent on staying as long as possible. Consequences be damned. The upshot, sadly, is that Israel is more divided than ever. And my thanks to Venetia Rainey there. That's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Charlie German. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture, so stick around for that. And Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. For now, though, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>